This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, Comedian Lee Camp, The Young Turks, Counterspin, The Colbert Report, The Onion Radio News, MarkFiore.com, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. big news about Iraq that I heard on CNN this morning and read about in the New York Times was that August marked the first month since Bush and Cheney launched the Iraq war that not a single U.S. soldier had died over there. And yes, that is newsworthy. But I heard a much bigger story about Iraq once I got to work and went online, and that story concerns an atrocity that our own troops appear to have committed in Iraq back in 2006. According to a diplomatic cable released by WikiLeaks containing an account by the UN's Special Rapporteur on Summary Executions, and according to some follow-up reporting by the McClatchy News Service, this looks like what happened. U.S. troops approached a house in Ashaki near Tikrit and were met by gunfire. They responded, the gunfire eventually ended, and American troops entered the house, handcuffed all residents, and executed all of them. They were all shot in the head, including an infant and four other children under the age of five. The U.S. troops then called in the bombers to destroy the house. This seems to be a mini-me lie, and the Pentagon, the Justice Department, and Congress have a moral and legal obligation to investigate this horrible alleged war crime. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. This is your moment of clarity. Twice as many Americans die from peanut allergies every year as from terrorism. And yet we spend mind-blowing amounts of money to be protected from terrorism. We give up our rights to be protected from terrorism. We go to war to be protected from terrorism. I think you can see where I'm going with this. It only makes sense to work equally hard to protect Americans from peanuts. We need a peanut alert chart. We need National Guardsmen at 7-Eleven standing in front of the snacks with semi-automatics. We need full body scans to see if any sociopaths have peanuts strapped to their penis. Maybe cavity searches to see if there's any peanut residue. Let's send Navy SEALs into the planter's compound in the middle of the night to shoot Mr. Peanut through the fucking face and drop his brittle peanut body into the ocean. Get it? Brittle peanut body? No, I don't think you did. Pay attention, alright? If bags of peanuts are left unattended, we need to send in a bomb squad to blow that shit to pieces. And since peanuts have killed Americans, you gotta assume all peanut farmers are trying to kill Americans. And since 50% of all peanuts are grown in Alabama, you gotta figure everyone in Alabama hates Americans and probably prays to some unholy peanut god that he'll wipe us off the map. So let me be the first to say, 
Fuck you, Alabama, and you fucking un-American peanut terrorist. And that goes for you too, Ali Delshi on CNN, because you kind of look like a peanut. So I'll see you in Guantanamo, bitch. And we can't possibly let these peanut assholes fly on a plane. They're twice as dangerous as regular terrorists. And that goes double for anyone wearing a top hat and a monocle. If you want to dress like Mr. Peanut, then we're going to treat you like Mr. Peanut. Peanuts are killing Americans twice as much as regular terrorism. Let's start defending ourselves now before the smoking gun comes in the shape of a Reese's cup. We often talk to you about corruption, not just within the government, but more specifically within the Pentagon. And of course, you're not allowed to point that out if you're in the rest of the press, because then, you know, how dare you? Are you not supporting the troops? But wait a minute, who the Pentagon is giving contracts to, especially private contractors, has nothing to do with the troops, but for eight years under Bush, we got, support the troops! That dude doesn't even have a yellow ribbon on his car. Coming in here talking about corruption at the Pentagon, how dare you, right? Well... One thing that we've been complaining about all along is the no-bid contracts. Like, wait, wait, why do... I thought the conservatives wanted a free market. I thought they wanted competition. I thought they loved capitalism. Why are we giving no-bid contracts to these contractors that are well-connected to people that are working inside the government and inside the Pentagon? Well, the excuse back then was, you think it's easy fighting a war we needlessly started? No, we started it in a panic and we didn't really have a plan, so we had to immediately give out those contracts. What could we do? Now... I, okay, look, you might think that's a weak excuse, but at least it's something. They just started the war, right? And back in, you know, in those days, there was about $50 billion worth of no-bid contracts. So obviously, now that we've been going at these wars for a long time, seven to ten years, Iraq and Afghanistan, well, obviously, there aren't any no-bid contracts left, right? <laughs> you can see where this is going. No. What's happened is the no-bid contracts have nearly tripled. Now there's $140 billion in no-bid contracts. There's no excuse for that, because obviously these cost us a tremendous amount of money, and the reporting is, are, is there, are there cheaper alternatives? Absolutely. More efficient alternatives? Absolutely. But, hey, you know what? That guy who gave the no-bid contract, you're going to be shocked to find out one day he's going to be working for the guy he gave the no-bid contract to at a very healthy price. $140 billion. No free market, no nothing. Just whoever uh, is, has better contacts at the Pentagon. By the way, it's nearly 50% of the contracts that we give out are no bids. Now, what does that lead to? One of the things it leads to is a new report that it turns out we wasted $30 billion in Iraq and Afghanistan. Who could have figured? Among the things that we wasted was on wartime contracting. Again, nearly half the uh, people that we have in these countries, Iraq and Afghanistan, are not troops. They're private contractors. And some of those have gotten no-bid contracts, and then, shockingly enough, they did not perform very efficiently, and we wasted $30 billion and don't know where it went. 
but shush, support the Pentagon, support the troops, bow your head. It's not like we live in a democracy where we should challenge our government. Okay, you tell me when you see this in the mainstream press. She says, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. My body's cold, my guts are twisted steel. And I feel like I'm some kind of Frankenstein. Waiting for a shock to bring me back to life But I don't want to spend my time Waiting for lightning to strike U.S. media have made a habit of misconstruing Iraqi public opinion about the presence of U.S. troops. As early as 2004, research showed more than half of Iraqis wanted the U.S. out. But prominent media outlets didn't want you to believe that. As the New York Times' John Burns strained to explain in March 2008, yes, those polls say that, but you shouldn't trust them. Quote, my own experience invariably was that Iraqis I met who felt secure enough to speak with candor had an overwhelming desire to see American troops remain long enough to restore stability. Close quote. Well, skipping forward to a few days ago, we have this headline in the September 11th New York Times, Many Iraqis Have Second Thoughts As U.S. Exit Nears. The report doesn't indicate a shift in Iraqi opinion about U.S. occupation. Instead, it's yet another attempt to convince readers that anecdotal information is a better indicator of Iraqi opinion. Quote, Though Iraqis have called for Americans to leave from the start of the occupation in 2003, the prospect of such a drastic drawdown from the 48,000 troops here now has revealed another side of the Iraqi psyche. This is a nation that distrusts itself with little faith in the government's own security forces or political leaders. It is as if people here never actually believed that the United States would leave, so all along demands for a pullout were never carefully weighed against the potential fallout. Speaking of distrust and considering the Times' history in promoting the war there, readers might want to take the paper's alleged concern for Iraqis with a grain of salt. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. a brand new book, Rock the Casbah, Rage and Rebellion Across the Islamic World. Forget the Islamic world, I bet the clash is pissed. Please welcome Rodman Wright. 
to see you again. Welcome back. Now, you say rage and rebellion in the Islamic world. Is that, is that a good thing that they are raging and rebelling? Because aren't we one of the things that they're raging and rebelling against? Because as bad as um, uh, Mubarak may have been, he was kind of our bad guy, wasn't he? Mm. You know, and the guy in Yemen who's not doing so well, he was kind of our guy there, wasn't he? Even Gaddafi, we'd normalized relations with, and Condoleezza Rice, his beautiful Lisa, 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 you know, <laughs> was meeting with him. Does the United States benefit from this rage and rebellion? Absolutely. This is something that should have been happening a long time ago, but we've been supporting a lot of the autocrats in the region. And in order to win the war on terrorism, it's really important that we get Muslim sentiment behind us, Muslim people who are on the streets taking initiatives. But we already did that by invading Iraq and getting rid of Saddam Hussein. And okay. that went so well. Well, we won. We won there. We went in there. We got rid of a bad guy, unless you'd like Saddam back. Just go ahead and say it. You want Saddam back? Uh, no. But, okay, good. But you, but then they should be thanking us. <laughs> Didn't we send a message to the Arab world that this is how you change things? And they went, Jesus, we, we could do that ourselves. <laughs> you know, except minus the Jesus part. They actually did. And that did they was, really? And, well, not be, no. In fact, they were re rejecting the model that we established in, in both Iraq and Afghanistan. It didn't work. Ten years later, we're still in both countries. Ten years later, there are more suicide bombers in Iraq than we have ever suffered from. Greater deaths in Afghanistan last month than at any time since we went in. The extraordinary thing that's happening in the region is that Muslims are taking proactive steps to, to challenge extremism, to challenge autocrats, and create a whole different environment in the region. And that's something that we are unable to do ourselves. We're great as a military fighting extremists. But that's, that's what gunboat we, diplomacy is about. It's about projecting power into an area of the world and then, you know, shaking up. What? <laughs> you, you don't think that we in any way help change the equation in the Middle East with the actions of the last 10 years? It was not what we did. It was the fact that people rejected the extremism by Al-Qaeda, by Osama bin Laden, that they paid a far greater price than we did. It was their rejection of extremism that has really turned the situation around in the region and created a different kind of culture, created you know, playwrights and poets and rappers who were all challenging regimes in a way that we can't do with any credibility. Guns alone are not going to change the reality on the ground in the Middle East. Well, let's talk about what guns have been able to achieve in the Middle East. <laughs> Okay, uh, we're 10 years uh, after 9-11. Okay, Osama bin Laden, dead. Saddam Hussein, dead. Abu al-Zarqawi, dead. Khalichuk Mohammed, in custody. Petraeus has hung up his spurs. He doesn't even need to be out there anymore. <laughs> well, however you feel about how this might have politically uh, affected things in the Middle East and how we might have been rejected by the man on the street, we have won the war on terror. Not yet. No, we, well, we are winning. <laughs> Are we, we are winning then. Are we winning or are the people in the region winning? We are winning. Because <laughs> they didn't wage the war. It's our war. We waged the war. We got all these guys. And you say that Al-Qaeda, is Al-Qaeda all busted up and everything? No, Al-Qaeda is still a threat, but it's increasingly passe. Look. Passe? Passe. They're not a pair of jeans. They're, <laughs> they're, 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 they're a criminal organization that is out to destroy the United States. What do you mean passe? That they don't have support anymore? In Egypt, a bunch of kids got out on the street and did in 18 days 
what Osama bin Laden and his number, former number two, now number one, an Egyptian, couldn't do in 30 years. This is an extraordinary moment. There's a whole different type of activism, whole different way of doing things, a rejection of extremist tactics and violence, whether it's the kind of uh, gunboat diplomacy we engage in or the extremism of uh, of Al-Qaeda. Well, that's the, you make an equivalence between our gunboat no, diplomacy not, and, and that kind of extremism. You're but not? Ne neither one can win solely with guns. Okay, 10 years on, 10, 10, 10 years ago on that terrible day, mm -hmm. some people in the Middle East were dancing in the streets after the fall of the towers. Would that happen again today? Absolutely not. But I don't think that th that was the majority of people in the no, region. No, no, but some people Oh, were. some people. We saw the footage of the people celebrating mm -hmm. the victory of Al-Qaeda as they perceived it. That You say that wouldn't happen today. They don't have enough support. No one you would see that as a good thing You for can't anybody. stereotype 1.57 billion people. Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> They are dangerous. They are dangerous and they make very poor Americans. Not true. But since 2007, there has been such an extraordinary wave of change throughout the region. We're really witnessing the beginning of the beginning of something entirely different. And it plays out in the uprisings on the street. It plays out in the culture that is giving it a, a different voice. Um, and we're seeing what is likely to be, this is the, the most epic convulsion and the most political important political turning point of the early 21st century. Well, are, are Muslims, you know, the most important question is, because I need to know who to stay mad at, <laughs> are Muslims still our enemy? No. Who's next? Lutherans? Because I'm ready to, you know, jack Garrison Keillor tomorrow. <laughs> if, the, if it's not Muslims, if it's not Muslims, who is it? Well, look, extremism is always going to be our, our enemy, no matter who engages in it. And there are all kinds of different extremists around the world. Our greatest challenge today is actually economic and the forces that are challenging, whether it's our inability to, to deal with debt issues, whether it's our inability to help people, because there's no sense of the future. And that's where we're really vulnerable. So you say that debt could be our biggest enemy. Well, I think that it could derail a lot of us in terms of what we, we want and creating a different kind of political reality as well. Should we be invading Visa? <laughs> Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea? All right. Thank you so much. Robin Wright, the book is Rock the Casbah. We'll be right back. NBC Nightly News did something unusual on October 7th. Anchor Brian Williams linked the Occupy Wall Street protest to ongoing U.S. wars as part of his introduction to a segment marking the 10th anniversary of the start of the Afghan war. The report that followed was, unfortunately, not so unusual. Pentagon correspondent Jim Mikulszewski quoted four sources, retired General Carl Eikenberry, retired General David Barno, and retired General Barry McCaffrey 
who some might recall in his role as part of the Pentagon's propaganda effort to feed talking points to TV pundits. He's also on the board of military companies that profit from government contracts. NBC also included a comment from Defense Secretary Leon Panetta, who is obviously not retired. Perhaps getting current and former military officials into a story counts as a kind of diversity. The rabbi reads from the testament, the banker gazes at the year's investment, salvation Santa solicits for the poor. Deception of democracy, the philanderings of full foreign policy, the holidays are here in which still at war. Smoggy skies and fixed elections and justice strikes from all directions. People with their backs against the floor. Looking for someone to set us free. A king with fists like Muhammad Ali. The holidays are here and we're still at war. It's the Onion Radio News. Six are dead in a West Point panty raid. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Six U.S. military cadets are dead and 14 are wounded after an unsuccessful panty raid on the West Point women's barracks last night. Company Commander Roger Phillips, a junior at the academy, was among the injured. I guess our training made us think strategically, and before we knew it, the whole panty raid had somehow turned into a meticulously planned 16-man undergarment acquisition mission and reconnaissance force. West Point officials released a statement saying, quote, unfortunate situations inevitably arise when the heady experience of college life combines with hundreds of hours of field training in tactics and weapons. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Sometimes we catch the real tough breaks. But here's a trick that I've been working on. Just say oops and move on. Or tweeted your boner to a college girl. Just say oops and move on. Ahmadinejad, the, of course, the leader of Iran, the so-called leader, of course, he didn't really win that election, anyway, goes to the United Nations and does a fiery speech where he says 9-11 is an inside job and that it was not al-Qaeda at all, it was the United States government. Oh, let it and, go. And, uh, and, and al-Qaeda has a response to it, so I was curious to see which way they went with it. They said the Iranian government has professed on the tongue of its president Ahmadinejad, which already sounds kind of dirty, uh, that it does not believe that al-Qaeda was be, uh, behind 9-11, but rather the U.S. government. Okay, so is al-Qaeda going to support Ahmadinejad or not? They say, so we may ask the question, why would Iran ascribe to such a ridiculous belief that stands in the face of all logic and evidence? Al-Qaeda is pissed that they're not getting the credit. Right. <laughs> they're like, what do you mean? We knew this big bombing, and now you're going to say it was the Americans? You're crazy, man. We go to all this trouble. <laughs> <laughs> right. To fight the great Satan, yeah. and then you got to go diss us like this. All in the planning that went into it. <laughs> right. Now, in fact, they almost literally say that. Uh, Al-Qaeda uh, was a competitor, and this continues as a statement against Iran. Al-Qaeda was a competitor for the hearts and minds of the disenfranchised Muslims around the world. Al-Qaeda, an organization under fire with no state, succeeded in what Iran couldn't. So he's like, oh yeah, you want to hit America. You guys suck. We hit America. Now you're trying to take that credit away from us, pretending it's Dick Cheney. Okay. And then finally they said, uh, all Iran ever does is, quote, give lip service jihad against the great Satan. 
He's like, we're busting our ass here, trying to fight the great Satan, and all you ever do is give lip service to it, and then you come turn around and try to take away our credit. Not going to happen. <laughs> I mean... Uh, well, finally, something we can agree with Al-Qaeda on. Well, I yeah. suppose. It's, it's as if, like, somebody came out and was like, hey, you know what, remember when uh, Mussolini killed all the Jews? And Hitler's like... Nine, 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 nine. <laughs> yeah, Wait totally. a minute. That was me. You can't take that credit away. Yeah. Yeah. You, I didn't see you coming up with the final solution. Yeah, yeah. Lip service on the Holocaust. <laughs> anyway, so it is a bizarre story and uh, weirdly amusing. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown. Or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, Comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. I'm not buying the Obama administration's lurid story about Iran being behind an alleged assassination plot in D.C. that was said to be targeting the Saudi ambassador in the Israeli embassy. It's highly implausible that the Iranian government would do something so reckless, which would almost guarantee that the U.S. would respond militarily against it, the last thing Iran wants. The idea that the Quds Brigade would have an Iranian-American wire a hundred grand to a bank account of a Mexican drug cartel is also highly implausible since everyone knows that the U.S. monitors any transaction over $10,000. Like most alleged plots since 9-11, this one has a U.S. informant at the center of it who knows how much egging on this informant did and how involved the informant was in trying to hook some Iranians in on the deal. With such a far-fetched plot, you got to ask, who benefits from the alleged discovery of it? The Saudis and the Israelis certainly do. They want the Iranians bombed yesterday. And the neocons in the U.S. do, too. They've been itching to bomb Tehran. Cheney is still scratching that itch. If the Obama administration was trying to placate the Saudis and the Israelis by confecting this plot, this sure is a weird way to do it. And it may be boxing itself in. Or worse, it may have some bombing plans up its sleeve. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. on getting information from terrorists. I'm going to have him call Time Warner customer service for me. <laughs> Please welcome Ali Sufan. Hey, 
Many of the people here may not know who you are, but they really should. Because you've got quite the impressive CV. You're a former special agent for the FBI. You served on the front lines against Al-Qaeda as an interrogator and a counter-terrorism operator. And you have a new book called The Black Banners, the inside story of 9-11 and the war against Al-Qaeda. What's a black banner? This is actually uh, what Al-Qaeda believe they are. Uh, the Black Banner is uh, a saying from the Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad. I know who that is. Yeah. That, that said that the Black Banner... <laughs> Sounds like a good guy, yeah. The Black Banners will come from Khorasan at the end of times for the final battle of Armageddon. And Bin Laden made a lot of these people who joined him in Al-Qaeda believe that they are part of this black banner myth that's going to come towards the end of time. It so it's so an, an apocalyptic vision. Well, it just gives us a, how, how little we know about Al-Qaeda as an organization after all these years fighting it. So. No, you, you actually found out a fair amount of Al-Qaeda, and you, you did that for the, the greater good of the United States. Let's tell the people some of the stuff you did here. You, uh, you got bin Laden's bodyguard to identify the September 11th hijackers. You got Abu Zubaydah to finger Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as the 9-11 mastermind. And you unearthed Jose Padilla's plan to use a dirty bomb. And I assume all of that was waterboarding. <laughs> because that enhanced interrogation is what got us the tips we needed to fight Al-Qaeda. Actually, none of this that you mentioned is because of enhanced interrogation techniques or waterboarding. For example, Abu Zubaydah. Uh, the first question I asked Abu Zubaydah his name, he gave me an alias. A wrong alias. So I looked at him in the face and I said, what if I call you Hani? Hani was the name his mother nicknamed him as a child. And he had that, oh my God, on his face. He got me, you know. And then we start talking and he gave actionable intelligence in the first hour of our interrogation with yeah, him. Yeah, but it didn't, wasn't enough because they eventually brought in an outside contractor who waterboarded him 83 times. Exactly. So if you were getting good information, they wouldn't have given him the, you know, the free swimming lessons. Right, right. The 83 waterboarding session is just a perfect example how these techniques don't work because if it works, what do you mean? you're not going to do it 183 with Abu Zubaydah, 183 with Abu Zubaydah, uh, with, uh, with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I'll give you an example. These enhanced interrogation techniques that concludes with waterboarding, yeah. as appalling as they are to people in the West, yeah. it is nothing compared to what Abu Zubaydah of Kalachik Muhammad are expecting to receive if they are caught in some Middle Eastern jails, for example. Right, so we're still the good guys for doing it. So, you, so, so just to be clear, you don't have a problem with waterboarding. I do have a problem with waterboarding because I don't believe it's effective. Let me tell you how interrogations work, for example. I know how that works. Good cop, bad cop. Uh, right? No, bad cop really. waterboards, good cop carries the towel. No. <laughs> where, where were you when I was on the front line? <laughs> I was on the front line here, my friend, every night. So, so how do they work? How do, how do you, you believe that you they, they work? You outsmart the individual. You have a lot of information already in your finger under your fingertips on that person, on the organization. You try to outwit them into knowing that you have a lot of things about them. Like, for example, Bin Laden's personal bodyguard had no idea who were the hijackers. We only knew that he knew one of the hijackers. After we made him believe that that hijacker may be a, may be a source to us, and he knows a lot about him, he started identifying, identifying everyone else. And this is how we knew that seven out of the hijackers were Qaeda operatives and we had all the information that we needed at the time that Al-Qaeda was behind 9-11.
Okay, now, so uh, you, you, you say you don't need to use waterboarding for any of that. Right. But Vice President Cheney said that enhanced interrogation, like waterboarding, is how we got this information. Are you right. saying he is not telling the truth? Well, I'm saying that I was there and he wasn't. And are I'm you, saying. Are you? If you are saying, go ahead, no, go ahead. And, and I am saying I'm the only one so far in the U.S. government who gave a statement under oath about the alleged efficacy of enhanced interrogation techniques. So when other people want to raise their right hand and take that oath and answer the questions, then we can talk. So if you're, if you're saying that these other people won't raise their hand and take an oath, you're, you're saying that these people are not telling the truth. You're saying that Dick Cheney is not telling the truth. I and I know the only way to get the truth out of him. <laughs> the waterboard the guy. I believe there's many other ways. Now, what, let's, let's talk about Al-Qaeda now. We're taking these guys out left and right. right. We just took out uh, our Laki, mm -hmm. okay, with a drone over Yemen. Are you down with right. that? Are you good with that? Absolutely. I'm down with it. I just want to make sure you're down with it. Steven. American citizen without a trial gets blown up over, over in Yemen because he's on the kill or capture list. Stephen, I don't like to discriminate against terrorists based on nationality. If you declare war on the United States and you want to kill us, we're going to kill you first, period. these people how do, how, how do you get uh, if you're on the killer capture list how do you get off and I'm just asking for a friend I, I, I think I think one day you will be sitting in a cave or in a room or in a small little mud house in the middle of a tribal area and a drone comes and takes you off the list so there's really there's only really one exit it's like Hotel California well, thank you so much for joining me. Ale Sufan, the book is The Black Banners. We'll be right back. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Richard Engel on NBC Nightly News October 21st, talking about the end of the Iraq war, said, quote, The training wheels off. Iraq will have to succeed or fail without American troops on the ground to guide the way, close quote. Well, that's quite a metaphor, invading and occupying a country for eight years as training wheels. Engel's report also included this reference to the death toll, quote, Iraqi deaths, almost 150,000, but many Iraqis believe it's a million. 
close quote. Those confused Iraqis. Of course, it's not just many Iraqis who believe the higher figure. The British polling firm Opinion Research Business, which has worked for the BBC, the British Conservative Party, and the International Republican Institute, conducted a survey that arrived at the one million estimate. The almost 150,000 number that Engel puts forward as reality appears to be based on the Iraq Family Health Survey, a joint effort by the World Health Organization and the Iraqi government, which actually estimated that there were 151,000 violent deaths and some 400,000 total excess deaths as a result of the war between March 2003 and June 2006. It's too bad viewers only had the choice of trusting either NBC's facts or Iraqi beliefs. I don't believe in that, what you said. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that, what you said. I don't believe in that. One dies, and I die too, so do you, a piece of you dies, and I believe in that, what I said. I'm glad President Obama is making good on his vow to end the Iraq war and bring our troops home. His announcement on Friday that they'll be back for the holidays was a welcome, if belated one. He saluted the nearly 4,500 soldiers who died in the nine years of this war, but he didn't say a word about all the Iraqis who died, anywhere between 150,000 and over a million. This was a bad omission on the president's part, lending weight to the misconception that only our casualties count. Obama also admitted the fact that he was prepared to keep thousands of U.S. troops in Iraq a while longer, but since the Iraqis refused to grant them immunity, he decided to bring them home. In his short speech, Obama stressed that the U.S. welcomes commerce with Iraq, which may lend credence to the claim many of us made that the Iraq war was a war for oil. The Wall Street Journal just ran a story with a headline, U.S. energy firms move into Iraq as troops leave. One more thing. Obama, in his speech, repeated a line he's used several times over the last few months, and that is, the tide of war is receding. But war is not a natural phenomenon. It's a product of arrogant human beings. And none was more arrogant than George W. Bush when he launched this war, a fact that Obama's metaphor unfortunately obscures. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I never knew the desert so high And all this heavy equipment must cost a lot When they issued me my gun And they told me to kill someone But he hasn't done a thing to me Sure, the facts say President Obama's actions led to the killing of Osama bin Laden, the blowing up of Anwar al-Laki, and later even his 16-year-old son, and the savage death of Muammar Gaddafi. But is Obama really tough enough? While he's increased troop strength, bombings, and battles, he's still nothing more than a weak-on-defense, lily-livered liberal. President Obama has yet to be seen cutting brush, flying a fighter jet, or wrestling a bear.
America can't afford a week on defense presidential no-show. That's why we will roll up our sleeves and keep our heroic soldiers in Iraq until Americans can safely eat corn dogs in Kirkuk, bagels in Baghdad, grass grows, and freedom-loving camels fly. We are so tough, we won't rest until our brave troops can't rest. Sure, Obama may appear to be strong on defense, but what about offense? Vote to make America more offensive in 2012. Another message brought to you by Republicans United in Disarray. I press trigger, I don't press people button. Nobody chaps confuse me with something. Like how I have 22 in them something. Dennis for you, so who gon' get the next dozen? I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able. As anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. People who are paying close attention know what the main reason is, and it's an asterisk that should be, you know, next to any political claim to fame for ending the Iraq war. It's something called the status of force agreements. You may have heard of this. The simple way to explain this is a status of force agreement is an agreement between the United States military and the government of the country that they're stationed in that's essentially a legal waiver. It states that the American troops will not be prosecuted in a in a court from that country and held accountable to their legal system if the americans get into any trouble break stuff kill people whatever they will be tried by you know the u.s military probably in the united states and certainly if any sentence is served that will be in the united states they will never be handed over to the locals for justice now, normally, this is something that gets signed once, you know, if we go into a country, topple the government, uh, as soon as we put a new government in power or one is created or however it happens, they are presented with these agreements. And usually they're very eager to sign them because if you don't sign them, we're leaving. And most of these governments are pretty darn shaky the first time that they sign these status of force agreements. They don't want the U.S. military gone, you know, right then and there, so they sign them. But eventually, this Iraqi government kept being threatened down the road. You know, you, you got to re-up that status of force agreement or we're leaving. And they kept saying no. And so finally, we are leaving to a degree. What sort of message does that send to a guy like Afghan President Hamid Karzai? Hamid Karzai, who just basically said to the Pakistanis that if there's a war between the U.S. and Pakistan, he sides with Pakistan. What does that tell Hamid Karzai the method to get rid of us is you want to get rid of the Americans don't sign the status of forces agreements and apparently we'll leave now let's understand something about the fine print in this idea of the war's over and the troops are coming home 
Have you taken a look at a map of the bases that we've put in Iraq anytime recently? The largest of which I believe is in Baghdad, and I believe it is the largest U.S. base outside the continental U.S. Isn't that right, Ben? Ben knows all that stuff. Ben is a base junkie. He knows all that kind of information. Um, we're not handing over the keys to these remarkable um, enclosures to the Iraqi government. And we are not not staffing the place, okay? We are also not going to have an Iraqi army all by themselves trying to keep the lid on that country. We are going to have a support staff. And in the military, a support staff is a lot more military than you would think. What President Obama is calling the end of the war will look very different in the history books written about this period later. It's a normal stage in the development of any of the kinds of wars that this Iraq war is. During the Vietnam War, the stage was called Vietnamization, and that meant the handing over of the job of maintaining security from the American forces to the local forces, right? And it's a transition, and it happens over time. It's not the ending of the war. It's merely a new phase. And in this case, the hope is that the elite core of the Iraqi army that's considered to be dependable with U.S. logistical aid, intelligence aid, and actual, you know, perhaps leadership aid in the field, that they'll be able to keep the lid on the tensions that are under the surface right now in Iraq when all hell breaks loose. That is a very open-ended question. Now, for those who haven't heard me talk about this, and I won't go into it too deeply, but the situation in Iraq is not as stable as it appears, okay? And every time I mention this, some American soldier in Iraq writes me email saying, you don't even know the half of it, Dan. You don't even know what we find on patrol, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you guys know if you're listening to me and you've been there or are there more than I do. But it's plain. Um, the information that's been coming out for years on this confirms it. The people that would normally be vying for the power in Iraqi society are all laying low until U.S. forces are not so much of a presence anymore. The same factional entities that erupted in violence uh, several years ago. And Iraq breaks down over a whole lot of different fault lines. The most obvious and the one that was such a problem a few years ago was the Shiite Sunni fault line. But there are several others. Those entities are all still around. They've all been stockpiling weapons and they all expect to have to at least defend, you know, their status from their enemies once the Americans are no longer the overriding, you know, force and presence in the country. All it will take, ladies and gentlemen, and look, this is how it happens. It will take one bad attack at a religious shrine or place of worship that kills a lot of people on any side. And you will start the tit-for-tat, Hatfield and McCoy-type violence. And I don't think a couple of elite Iraqi units, even with U.S. support, is going to be able to quell what that will, you know, lay open. And then you have a million variables that come into play. I mean, think about the variables of the Kurds in the north, and you can see all kinds of things that could happen. And if that happens, then the U.S. faces a um, a crisis situation where they either have to decide to come back to quell the violence. Maybe you could shift assets over from Afghanistan back to Iraq to temporarily get a handle on things, a surge, if you will, 
Or you decide that Americans have either had enough emotionally or the politicians have had enough politically or the economy has had enough fiscally and you say, you know, things are up to the Iraqis now, which is essentially what we did when Vietnamization failed and the North Vietnamese came over and attacked the South hardcore in 1975. And the last lasting images you have of the U.S. fleeing is helicopters removing people from the American embassy with crowds, you know, trying to be the last people in the helicopters. And then the helicopters being dumped off the aircraft carriers, you know, off the Vietnamese coast. I mean, just classic stuff. But that's what the government of the U.S. said at that time. The American people were not emotionally going to go back and get into the Vietnam War after they'd gone to all the trouble to get out. Be interesting to see what happens when... It all hits the fan in Iraq, and I'm hoping it doesn't, but I don't think that what's there is going to be able to quell the amount of violence that's just, not just under the surface, folks, but even if the Iraqis wanted to keep violence from getting out of hand, there were going to be too many foreign nations meddling in the region. I mean, what Iran is going to do all by themselves is um, enough to foment trouble. Um you know, the Saudis, I mean, it, it, there's going to be a lot of meddling, folks, and the meddling is not going to be meddling hoping to keep things more peaceful. Obviously. Now, none of that is what I wanted to talk about with this Iraq war, though. I wanted to talk about the question we're not going to ask in this country, but that is the one that any logical person would sit down and ask right now. If the war is really over, what did we learn? I saw a clip on some website, um, because I don't watch very much television, so if I see a um, particularly interesting clip. Sometimes I'm seeing it on websites, as many of you are too. And I saw one from the Fox News channel, for those of you outside the United States who don't know. This is a conservative news station. And there are some views that either you tend not to hear on it, or if you hear them, they tend to be ridiculed. And yet in this clip I saw, you had Bill O'Reilly, who's one of their conservative commentators, talking to Geraldo Rivera, who's a journalist who's been at Fox for a few years, but traditionally you would think of him, I always thought of him as a liberal journalist. And at Fox, he kind of hides it better, I think. But they were having a conversation on Fox about sort of the Iraq war now that it's over, as we all say, I guess, for for the limited amount of time until it's proven otherwise. Um, they were having this conversation about whether or not it was worth it. And both of them expressed the opinion on the Iraq war that it wasn't worth the cost. Now, I thought it interesting when, especially one conservative, but on a conservative network, these people looked at the situation and said it wasn't worth it. The next question, though, that I had in my head is, all right, well, is somebody responsible for this? Where does the buck stop? To quote the Harry Truman phrase, right? He said, the buck stops here. Where's the accountability? Why were we allowed to go into that war? without declaring war, based on a bunch of, you know, questionable decisions, the sort of decisions that a person in private medical practice, had they been making them, would have been certainly in a court of law defending themselves over. Where is the integrity in the system when nobody has to answer for anything? Now, I know if you said what I feel, that Republican mouthpieces out there on Fox News, for example, would call this some sort of partisan warfare. But the fact that we didn't go after Harry Truman 
is the reason that there was no war declared in Vietnam. It's the reason there was no war declared in the first Gulf War. It's the reason there was no declared war in the second Gulf War or Afghanistan or ever will be again. How does Dick Cheney get off scot-free in this whole deal? How does Donald Rumsfeld get off scot-free in this whole deal? They get off scot-free because the other political side of the divide doesn't want accountability either. We don't want to look backwards, President Obama said when he got into office. Right? We're not going to go question the decisions of the previous administration. That's the same as saying that there are no consequences to the decisions you make because any future administration is not going to call you to the carpet. When you take accountability out of a system, ladies and gentlemen, what happens to it? You know, I've been reading some excerpts from Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State's uh, new book, and she talks about running into the Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld cabal is the only way to put it within the Bush White House. These extreme hawks who felt like, you know, imperial powers make their own reality. So you don't that's, a, you know, one of their quotes. I mean, they make their own reality. They don't have to go by any rules that are written that, that by the sheer force of will, a great nation makes its own reality. It's all part of what they felt empowered them to do things that would have gotten you prosecuted by the United States in 1946, right? You okay the torture of people. You uh, go fight wars in countries that haven't attacked you. And in 1946, that gets you in the docket with U.S. lawyers and military tribunals trying you. Go read the Nuremberg stuff, folks. I mean, that's the standard we ourselves set. That was when we were the people holding people accountable. It would be very interesting to bring our great-grandparents back, or in my case, grandparents. Hide the name of the country so that they didn't see it said United States and give them a blind taste test and said, if you ran into a country that did this, that, and the other thing, what would you think? Would that country be liable for prosecution? And let me say something else. I'm not saying Dick Cheney needs to go to jail or Donald Rumsfeld needs to go to jail. That's not accountability. That accountability is something that would be decided as part of whatever passes for a trial or an inquest or a hearing. The people that get to decide this question are the people that listen to the evidence. I'm not sure a jury of their peers is what I'm looking for because that's how we got into this mess. We don't want to go back and look at uh, you know past decisions and question that. But the truth of the matter is, folks, that's how every industry in this whole world works or they go out of business. If you are the CEO of a company and you do something stupid, you may get a golden parachute from the stockbrokers, but you're going to probably have your rear end canned. And it's going to be on your resume forever. There are ramifications. Those people know it. And they're still distasteful. Dick Cheney got a book tour, folks. Donald Rumsfeld got a book tour. They didn't even get a hearing. Nobody even asked any questions. We didn't even look into the matter to decide if there was something, you know, that needed looking into. I mean, it's just, I guess, uh, folks, I'm speechless. Who operates that way? And for those of you who think this is just some Democrats slamming Republicans, when we get the next administration into office, if it's Republican, I damn well want them to go back and look at President Obama knocking off American citizens overseas on the you know word of some shady little memo that no one's allowed to see in the State Department. Damn right I want you to. This isn't partisan. This is accountability. 
If accountability is something that's just a partisan witch hunt, then you've just gotten rid of the most important part of most systems you want to look at. And the part that ensures that it's honest. We all already know that that's missing. The question is, is look, what do we think it's going to take to put it back, folks? Penalties. Investigations. You can't have an investigation in this country anymore. You know why? It's all secret. 77 million documents last year was the last number I saw classified. To allow the people who need to be held accountable, as any system needs to hold the decision makers accountable, to allow them to wall off so much of the very things you would need to hold them accountable from view or oversight or discussion is to give control over accountability to the very people who need to be monitored. Again, it's part of the, the loss of separation of powers that's so much a part of the unbalanced system we have right now. Whether the separation of powers is between the guy who gets to declare war versus the guy who gets to fight the war. Or whether it's over the people who need to be held accountable and those that need to hold them accountable. All these things are merging and accountability is the victim. What downside is there to the next president pushing the constitutional envelope even farther. What downside is there? Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, so today I have a story to tell. And this is basically my favorite story, to t my favorite story right now to tell just in normal social situations. You know, I've, I've been telling several people this story and it has everything to do with, with the show. So I want to share with you and, and you'll appreciate it. So this is all about uh, the David Pakman show and a little bit about what's been going on behind the scenes here. And you've actually heard the results of this story, but you haven't heard the story itself, or at least it's likely you've heard the results of it. So First of all, just to back way up, I um, I think his show is hilarious. I, I am basically guaranteed to laugh out loud at some point or another at least once during every episode of his show. And for a long time, I couldn't I couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was that I thought was so funny. I, I had a little bit of an epiphany, and I told him I was like, I think I figured it out. You guys are like a comedy duo, but with two straight men. Now, you know, the straight, you know, like a, you know, Abbott and Costello sort of comedy duo, there's like the one crazy wacky guy and the and the straight man who's just kind of like normal and he gets all the jokes kind of bounced off of him. And but but you know, so Dave's the host and then his producer also acts as a bit of a co-host. And uh, and the two of them have similar Similar-ish personalities, or at least uh, they, they uh, or, or they, they work well together. It's similar uh, comedy personalities, anyways. And so they they will both say funny things, but both of them say it in, in a very kind of deadpan, uh, not intending to be funny sort of way. So I described them as as like a comedy duo with two straight men, which is absurd, <laughs> but somehow magically works with them. And then a few weeks or, or months later, I heard this on – or I saw it on television on a, a show called Important Things with Dimitri Martin. And it was, so it's like comedy, sketch, uh, sketch comedy. And, uh, and I heard this. So uh, have a listen. What's the second baseman? I don't even get past the – all right. Who's on second? Who 
who's on first? What base do you want to talk about? They say in comedy, the straight man is everything. If you don't have a good straight man, you don't have an act. Bill Max and Stan Mintz were both the straight men in separate comedy acts. But when both their comic counterparts were killed in tragic accidents, Max and Mintz, left without partners, decided to team up together. The first ever duo with two straight men. Hey, uh, have you been shopping lately? Uh, yes, I did. I went to the store the other day. How was that? Uh, kind of uneventful. All right. At first, audiences didn't know what to make of them. But soon, mostly thanks to the horrors of World War II, audiences were desperately looking for reasons to laugh. And Max and Mintz were on their way. So I heard your mother-in-law is coming to visit. Is that true? My mother-in-law? Yeah, you told me your mother-in-law is coming to visit. Are you sure it wasn't your mother-in-law? No, it's not mine. I thought you told me it was yours. No, that wasn't me. Hmm, well, I stand corrected. <laughs> Soon they were working Las Vegas, and it wasn't long before Hollywood came calling, leading to their feature film debut, Max and Mintz Out West. Well, here we are in the West. Here we are. So I hear your mother-in-law's coming to visit. No, my mother-in-law's not visiting this cowboy. What about yours? My mother-in-law's not coming. I thought you told me your mother-in-law was coming to visit. No, that must have been the sheriff. They had a long career on the silver screen, but to this day, they're best remembered for their classic stage routines. And the most famous of those, the new car bit. So I hear you bought a new car. You heard I bought a new car? Yes, I heard you bought a new car. Tell me about it. Did you buy a new car? No, I didn't. I heard that you did. Tell me about do it. Do you have a car? No, I don't have a car. I heard that you have a car. Tell me. I do have a car. That's correct. Did you have engine problems? Uh, not really. Well, I heard that you had engine problems. You were going to tell me about it. Well, that must have been somewhere else. Oh. My mistake. Every comedian needs a straight man. These two showed us this rule even applies for straight men themselves. Max and Mintz, true classics. So I heard that and I just thought it was the best representation of the David Pakman show. Like that is David and Lewis. So uh, so a few more weeks or months go by and then I hear this, this bit from the David Pagman show and this is what I always quote when I'm telling this story verbally. So the last 15 seconds is, is what I quote but I'm going to play like full 45 seconds to give you a little bit more context. And so this is, uh, this is David starting off and they're, they're just talking about the David Pagman show t-shirts that they have available which are uh, very environmentally friendly because they're made out of cotton scraps and, and, and plastic bottles apparently. If it, they, if they were only made of recycled cotton scraps, I don't think Mark and Adrian would care. But because the shirts are also made out of recycled plastic bottles, I mean, can you imagine that? They're going to be interested. Just in general, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if you don't own a David Packman Show t-shirt, you're not hip, you're not cool. Lewis, very, very argumentative here with the audience and even, even throwing out insults. You, I don't gotta, subscribe to that. you got to get with the times and just... And just get a T-shirt. Is that is your David Pakman show shirt too big or too small? I can't tell. Feels just right. It does. Yeah. Okay. Well, there it is. Okay, so I am I'm deadly serious about this. The first time I heard that, I I almost cried laughing. Uh, I I just I found it so absurdly funny. Uh, well, or absurd and therefore funny. So I, I was like, right, this is it. Like this is what's funny about their show. So all right. Pause. Keep all of that in mind. That's the background. Here's the real story. So for months now, uh, David and I have been doing cross-promotion between our two shows. He has a promo running on my show, and I have one running on his. 
and and you know everything was going fine for a while and then this this past summer i i got not one but two different comments from people saying not only like i love your show and i love the david packman show but i think that the promo that he has running actually makes his show sound worse than it really is you should suggest to him that he make a new one because you know this one it's it he's probably he's probably convincing more people to not listen to his show rather than bringing more people in and i was like all right well if i get two comments like this i guess maybe it's time for some tough love hey dave what do you think you want to make a new promo and so he, so he says you know he's up for it and he says you know he asks what what i think it should sound like and I said, I don't know, but you guys are really funny. So uh, get your producer Lewis, get him involved because you guys are funny together, and then and just make something that's funny. Just try to be funny, and and whatever you come up with, I trust. I trust will be will be good. So a few more weeks goes by, and he comes back with uh, with a scripted promo that's attempting to be funny. At which point, I realized the fact that they were trying to be funny was a problem because you know going back to the background story. They're funny because they're naturally funny, but it turns out they're less funny if they're trying to be funny. So I was like, oh, all right. Um, how, what if you guys tried to improv something? What if you just sat down with Lewis and, and turned on the microphones and just asked him, hey, what do you think the best thing about our show is? Whatever conversation you have in that 30 seconds will be better than anything you could possibly script because you will naturally say something funny. So you know, a couple more weeks goes by, and and they attempt this. They, um, uh, you know, he sits down with Lewis. He doesn't let Lewis script anything, and he just asks, "Hey, what do you think the best thing about our show is?" And Lewis was not happy about it. He, um, well, for instance, this happened. Dave, we have to plan this. You plan every other thing you've ever done. Why aren't you planning this one? Why does this promo make you so upset? Because you just don't get it. It has to sound good. It has to, it has to make people want to watch the show. So, so they made these three promos where they're attempting to improvise, but Lewis was was so self conscious about trying to be funny without being allowed to prepare. He he actually became hostile towards towards the entire endeavor. So so they made these promos and they're kind you know they're they're definitely off the cuff and they're very they're real, <laughs> um, but they they were they definitely borderlined between funny and and not really funny but mostly just uncomfortable uh, because Lewis was so mad about it. So at this point, I was basically ready to to give up because you know what are you going to do? Like how are you going to improvise a scene? If 50% of the improv troupe is hostile to the idea of, of improvising. And that is when I had one of my most brilliant ideas, which is the entire reason for me telling this story, because I'm so proud of it. I, I had a flash to like a nature documentary. I thought, you know, how do those giant camera crews get animals to act naturally in their natural environment when there's a giant camera crew in the way, right? How are we going to get Lewis to be funny in his natural, casual, calm, relaxed state when he knows that he's trying to be funny to do to do a promo? You know, it's not it's not going to work. But in a nature nature documentary, those giant ca- uh, camera crews they they come into town and uh, well, you know, into nature, <laughs> and and they sit there for a long time and they just don't disturb anything. And they let the the animals kind of freak out that like, hey, who are these weird people here? 
and then eventually they they forget about them because they showed up but they didn't do anything for like weeks at a time. So um, so that I thought that's it. We have to we have to trick Lewis. Just, just like a, a wildebeest, we have to trick him into acting naturally in his natural environment. And, uh, and so I got Dave on the phone. I said, okay, I've got it. During a bonus show, you know, Dave has bonus shows for his uh, pain, pain members. I said, during a bonus show, just have a casual conversation about why he got so mad doing those promos. And then as part of that conversation, just casually ask, hey, so like, so now that we're not, you know, now the pressure's off and we're not trying to make a promo, I'm just genuinely in- interested. What do you think the best thing about the show is? And at that moment, they will have a genuine conversation and Lewis will say something genuine and natural and it'll come across as, as however it comes across. And I guarantee it'll be funny because you guys are funny. And so that is exactly what they did. <laughs> they, they had a six minute conversation, which I then edited down to three separate brand new promos for his show, which I f- find infinitely better than than anything they did before or or could have done or you know scripting it and uh, and so those are the three promos for the David Packman show that you guys will now hear on a regular basis and that's how they they came about basically uh tricking poor Lewis as if he was the uh the subject of a nature documentary so i you know i really got a kick out of the fact that my idea effectively worked you know, we, we ended up with the result that we were looking for and you know now obviously i can conclude with saying if you haven't already you should really check out the david Packman show it is funnier than you might imagine and they do it without trying so that is it for today i'm just going to thank a couple of my members vicky d signed up for a leftist membership on uh, july 8th and signed up for a full year in advance and uh, and alan b signed up for uh more recently on july 24th but went ahead and signed up for a communist membership, went a couple of levels above and beyond uh, uh, the, the minimum support level and signed up for a monthly membership and has stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks uh, to Alan for going above and beyond and Vicky for paying for a full year in advance. It is enormously helpful. I couldn't do it without you guys. Thanks, of course, to all the members and donors who helped keep the show going. And everyone, of course, can uh, help support the show in their own way just by continuing to tell everyone you know about it and spreading the word via uh, your social networks instructions to do that couldn't be easier. It's all set up through the show notes on, uh, you know, for every episode to stay tuned into the show between episodes. You can join up with us on Facebook and Twitter directly. You can also donate your Facebook and Twitter accounts to us. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine of black and white, so took picture that wasn't right. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like